everyone. Thanks for joining us again on the Reality 2.0 podcast. I am Catherine Druckman. Joining me today, as always, is Doc Searles, who you all know, or you should by now. We also have Petros Katupis, our frequent uh, guest co-host. Petros is going to tell you his best title ever in just a moment. But in the meantime, we also have Dave Hughesby, who is currently the security maven with Hyperledger. But he's also going to tell you his best title ever because they have some good ones. Um, I don't think I can compete with it, quite frankly. Uh, and today we're going we're gonna to talk about a few things, probably a little Hyperledger, a little decentralized uh, internet, and we're going to have a good time. So with that, Petros, what is your best title ever, job title? Well, well um, you know, at a certain point, titles become somewhat meaningless, you know, in, 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 um, in the workforce. So a lot of companies allow you to make up your own or they'll make one up for you. And when I was with IBM, it was chief necromancer and troll master. So whenever anybody looked me up in the internal uh, company directory, that's exactly what you would find. Well, that's great. Um, can I just introduce you as that from now on when you do the podcast? Chief Excellent. Okay. And Dave, please tell us what your coolest title ever was. <laughs> well, uh, official title or nickname? Oh, I both. Some... Please both. <laughs> Well, um, apparently my nickname, the best one I've ever been given was when I worked at Mozilla. Um, I was known as Dr. No, because I was heavily involved in security and privacy there. And apparently I would just go into meetings and say, no, 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 we can't, you know, we can't collect data on users. We can't do this. No. And so (laughs) they're like, great, Dr. No's here. We can't have any fun. Um, And that's kind of followed me out into into the broader world. I've heard people refer to me that at, at conferences um but uh i think also my best my best uh title ever was at mozilla i was officially their engineer of speculative and disruptive technology which uh gave me a wide portfolio to stick my nose in a lot of places that's great i uh you know somebody has to be the doctor no back to that it's good that you know somebody's got to do it it might as well be you <laughs> yeah yes so doc with that I'll, I'll you want to take it you want to take it away and give us yeah i was talk? actually saying things but i was i, I put myself on mute oh uh-oh. um I, 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 one of the many headstones i've thought of having is one that just says sorry i'm on mute um but anyway uh yeah i, was, I would just want to say that i um i had this i had a business partner whose nickname um was the magic eight ball because you would go to him for a decision he'd just give you one and usually the answer was no, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> anyway, uh, and with, between Doc and Sleepy, which is my nickname in junior high school, I have been two of the seven dwarves. So that's, uh, that covers something. I've known anyway, you to I, be grumpy too. I can be grumpy. It, it has happened. <laughs> it has happened. And I am sneezy for sure, as I'm allergic to California. And that's, that's, part, that's part of my portfolio of characteristics. By the way, th- there's something about doing something like this that brings out the wood chippers in this, in this city. It's not just the leaf blower people, but what you're hearing in the background, of course they have a very directional mic here, so hopefully it's yeah, I hear helping. Yeah, oh, you're, oh yeah, wow, I you're doing, it's yeah. really loud. I'm very impressed that, uh, that, that this actually works. Um, they're actually like, they're grinding up trees outside, like in the driveway. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, nice yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, about Dave, I, I, I really wanted Dave on the, uh, on the podcast because 
uh, he is among the purest people I know and, and from coming from the, the free software and open source side and, and especially around uh, personal freedom, uh, which, which should be at the base of, you know, it, it's, it's at the base of, of many of the world's great um, documents and principles and laws and the rest of it, but isn't, and I think was there kind of at the most basic level in, in the internet itself, like at the TCPIP level. Um, but he might even dispute that. But one of the things he talks about and has talked about is that the, the web uh, itself it has uh, inequality built into it. Uh, for Linux Journal years ago, I, I wrote a piece uh, saying, uh, you know, quit, quit making cows and quit being calves because I thought of client server as a calf cow system. You're always the calf. You're always, they go, you go to the cow for the milk of, of content and cookies you don't want and um and that's but later somebody told me that in fact slave master was an, an early that that client server was a euphemism for slave master and we could see it we could see it in the way it's played out so anyway i wanted i was looking forward to dave talking about that <laughs> yeah uh, well i have just recently published a bunch of stuff and i think that's what perpetrated or what, what brought this conversation out um uh, I've been thinking about this for a very, very, very long time. Um, I, I think the reason why, you know, you said earlier, a lot of the purists are, are not longer, no longer with us. And that I'm one of the few that remain. I think that's a historical consequence. I was first on the internet in the late eighties when I was 12. So, and I was always into math and codes and I was involved in, reading, well, not really involved. I wasn't writing software at the time, but I was definitely reading and understanding cryptography as it was being worked on in that time. And I really um, was marinated in that whole cypherpunk culture of maximum freedom and, and cryptography as a tool of sovereignty. And unfortunately, a lot of them were, you know, what we euphemistically call graybeards back then. Even they were retired engineers from Bell Labs and things, and so yeah, most of them aren't around anymore. Um, but to get to your point about the World Wide Web, uh, I don't know how many of your listeners have heard of this, but there's sort of a movement of foot about the, we call the D Web, right? The decentralized web, um, and it's yeah. people or the distributed. like. Yeah. Or a distributed web. Yeah, it's Tim Berners-Lee and, you know, uh, a lot of the former Mozilla people. And they're, they're trying to put energy into tools that they think will re-decentralize the web or redistribute the web, right? And I'm making a bit of a reputation for myself by being the one person in the room that says that's a fantasy that was never true. The web itself was never decentralized that it was baked in from the beginning, the, the seeds of our Facebook, Twitter, Google dominated world that we have today. And, and my number one piece of evidence for that is that the surveillance economy was pioneered by InfoSeq in 1994. Really? The web, it, it, yeah, the I web was paid barely them. two years I, old. Yeah, I paid them for searches <laughs> right. back and in the beginning. They yeah. pioneered the... Um, the pay for advertisement per thousand impressions, that market. They also 
pioneered looking at what people search for and, and drawing market intelligence from that and selling the data. Um, and that was back in 1994. Wow. Like literally the web was barely in existence, right? I think the summer of 93, I had a piece of eight and a half by 11 paper and I had every web server in the world written on it. That's how, how small the web was when, yeah. when the surveillance economy got started. So did you use, did you use links or one of the pre graphical uh, browsers? No, I think my first browser was mosaic. I think yeah. so. I mean, I did write some C code that could connect and download a page, you know, so I could archive web pages. I remember doing that, but um, yeah, I was a mosaic browser user, but um, hey, what were you saying? No, I no. said like Go. Perl or wget is today. Yeah, yeah, a primitive version of that, basically. Um, but yeah, the, the problem with the web is that w when it was invented, we didn't know. Like, we just didn't know better. There, there are f nine fundamental problems that distributed systems have to solve. And the web only solves like two of them. And my thesis in this line of thinking is that if you don't provide a solution for any of them, that you open up an opportunity for companies to come in and fill that void. And uh, I call it corporate capture. And, and the best example of that is what like GitHub did with Git. Git doesn't provide decentralized solutions for a lot of the functions that you need to have to use Git effectively. And so then GitHub comes in and provides those services and quickly captures what a third of the the market of open source developers and then they get bought by Microsoft for billions of dollars I mean um, the web originally was designed to only just move files from a server to users and then to be able to bounce around servers right and it doesn't provide like most of the decentralized services and so it's it's, it's no surprise that almost immediately companies started filling in the gaps and building the surveillance economy and doing all the things. Um, and uh, I guess my main, my main criticism of the D-Web is that they're not trying to get away from the web. They're trying to re quote unquote recreate a decentralized web, but I'm saying that that's a fantasy. It never existed. So if it never existed, how do you know you're achieving it, right? And if you're using these legacy technologies that don't have user sovereignty and user protections built into them, how are you ever expecting to build something that does have those properties if you're building it from constituent pieces that do not? And uh, so, so I mean, those properties, you, you said there were nine or so. And, and those, well, the, are, those are the those are the problems of distributed systems. And okay, to, okay, to build a fully decentralized solution or de decentralized system you have to solve each of those problems with a decentralized solution. And I make a distinction between the word distributed and decentralized. Um, yeah. Not all distributed systems are decentralized. Decentralization is more about the balance of power between users and the operators of the network and about user sovereignty. Like Facebook, for instance, is a distributed system. It's thousands and thousands of computers all over the world that work together to provide the service that's distributed. But nobody would say it's a decentralized service because users have no sovereignty. You just have to submit to the rules of Facebook and or don't use the service, right? Hmm. Th right. That's interesting because uh, you know uh, most of the 
including my own writing on this, uh, you know, go back to Paul Barron, who said that uh, he's the one who made the original distinction between, um, he basically brought it out saying that, you know, that computing at that time was 1964, 62, somewhere back there, yeah. consisted of, you know, a, a, a few enough computers to name. Um, and, um, and he said, those are centralized. And then you can also decentralize them. And then, uh, but he said the third level is distributed and that's often credited with helping design the internet as it happened. But yeah. I think your, but your point is that on the server side, the, the that Facebook is decentral is, is distributed. Right. But, but, but we're as a not, system as a system. So, so what we want in order to have full sovereignty for individuals, that is decentralization, not distribution. We're Correct. In that case, and we're I, just a, yeah. I, I realize that I'm conflicting with previous definitions of these, wor these words. And, and unfortunately, now that we have decentralized identity or self-sovereign identity coming out of Hyperledger, those two words, distributed and decentralized, kind of got muddied together. Yeah, they're, they're very mushed together. Yeah. Right. Sure. And so I'm seeking to <clears throat> clarify the distinctions between the two of them. And that sets up the discussion of, well, if decentralization is about user sovereignty. Well, what is user sovereignty? And I like to think of it as whatever Facebook isn't, whatever mm. Twitter isn't. And when I started going down that road, I realized that there's roughly six things, six principles of user sovereignty. Um, and they're, uh, yeah, they're, they're pretty easy to remember. Because those are, yeah. Yeah, so just think about how the web is now, the web is not user sovereign. So what would, and if Facebook and Twitter and Google are one end of a spectrum that we're calling the user sovereignty spectrum, um, the end that doesn't have any user sovereignty, what does the opposite, the extreme other end of that spectrum look like? And um, when you think of it that way, these properties fall out pretty easily. Mm -hmm. um, the other end of the spectrum is that everything is private by default. Mm -hmm. Meaning that uh, not even logging, right? Uh, you would assume that IP address logging doesn't exist. Um, they never ask, you know, for your username or anything like that. So it's all private by default, maximum private by default. At the, at the same time, it would also be pseudonymous by default. And I use pseudonymous because anonymous means that there are no names. And um, on the internet, that's almost impossible. So pseudonymous is the equivalent of anonymous, except that you're using uh, proxies for your, your identity, like your public key, for yeah. instance. Okay. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. It, I mean, anonymous literally means not, not name, nameful. Anonymous without an A at the front, which sounds like anonymous is actually the, to be nameless. But your point is, in order to interact, you're going to have to have a name. So you make one up. Right. Your real and... Name um, Right. And you can call, and what we're really fighting against here is what's called correlation. And correlation mm -hmm. is just a fancy word for tracking. Like, uh, can I do, can I identify you as the same person I talked to five minutes ago? Uh, that's tracking, that's correlation. And if you're using things like public keys or large random numbers to identify yourself, you can constantly change them. So you can break correlation, right? So it's effectively anonymous, although you're giving some value, a number like, okay, you don't need to know who I am, but I'm droid TK419, right? And mm -hmm. now later on, I'll be 
Princess Leia, and then later on I'll be a Luke Skywalker. Like I can constantly so people do, have been name. doing an IRC since forever. Exactly. You know? Right. That's a yeah. pseudonymous system. I've been right? rumpled foreskin there for you know off and on. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. Um, so yeah, those are the first two: private by default and pseudonymous by default. So that gives you like as a user, you have a pretty pretty big hammer. You have a, a lever, right? You have a lot of leverage over servers that are designed this way because if the economy is one of surveillance and tracking you. Um, which is largely how Google and Twitter and Facebook make their money. Um, if you assume a system that is the opposite of that, now they have to come to you. And that gives you sort of a, a more balance of, balance of power in the system. So those are the first two. And then the next one um, is, this one's more like, uh, you know, um, the Tor browser, you know, the Tor network guys and, and ladies influenced me on this one. You want strong encryption by default. Not a, mm -hmm. no packet leaves my system unencrypted. And so that the systems in the middle cannot see it at all, right? So communication must be endpoint, endpoint only. So end-to-end -end encryption. So that's the third one. The, the fourth one um, is one that you like, which is everything needs to be built using open and standard protocols and formats. Mm -hmm. And this one is about... Uh, portability, data portability, user portability. I should be able to take my ball and go home, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine if Facebook, if, imagine if there was a standard. I know there was like a friend of a friend standard once or whatever, Both, but imagine, yeah. Back in the right imagine, now, right? Yeah. Imagine if there was an actual internet standard for how to uh, store your social graph and all your data. And if I went to Facebook and I said, I want to close my account down and I want all of my data in a standard format. Mm -hmm. And then if Mastodon had supported that standard format, I could then just go over, you know, sign up to sdf.org and log into their Mastodon and then upload my, all my data from Facebook, right? This again, maximizes my leverage as a user and my freedom as a user, my sovereignty. I can leave any service I want and yeah. go over to another one if all my data is in a standard format and protocol. In in uh, in economic terms, and also I think in terms of using multiple services, uh, that's called substitutability. Yeah, you can yeah you can substitute one for another. You know, I can go, I can like Lyft and Uber are substitutable if you want to use them. Right there, you know, you can use right. either one. Everybody understands how they work. Yeah. Right, but we your data is not. You know, your data right. it's locked up in either one of those. You can't take one to the other. Right, yeah. uh, we do have a widely used system that is completely open in standard protocols and formats. People take this for granted, but uh, email is this way. Yeah. Because I can use, I can write some Python or use a tool that talks IMAP, download all my emails and contacts and store them in a vCard file and an inbox file. Then I can go and sign up with Fastmail and I can upload an inbox yeah. file and upload a vCard and I'm totally portable in my data. I've, I've done this four times at least so far. I do have... Right. Something to mention about email, and and uh, this is some. I cannot speak to every email host provider, but there are some companies out there. One that uh, <laughs> one that, for example, that rhymes with the word Yahoo. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it is. <laughs> uh, that literally store your email indefinitely for the rest of the time. They have 
every single email since they first went online stored on their storage servers in their data centers. And even if you shut down your account, that email will remain there forever. Really? Oh, that doesn't, doesn't Google say, uh, unless that there's only last 18 months or something like that. There's now, some time limit. This was, this was part of a conversation that I had with a rep back when I yeah. used to work with the former. It sounds credible. I mean, it's just because, you know, given data yeah. hoarding imperatives. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I am. Um, oh, yeah. So, wait, can we go back to rounding out these six here? Hey, go I'll, for it. You got two to go. Up. So, yeah. So, the, just to recap, the first four are private by default, pseudonymous by default, strong encryption by default, and open in standard protocols and formats. Those are the first four. Then the last, or the last two, this one's more about what we're working on at Hyperledger and the whole uh, self-sovereign identity. Um, the fifth principle is what, not who, for authorization. So accounts hmm. on Facebook and Twitter and Google, you have to use your real name. And they go through all kinds of stuff to ensure that. You have to link it to a phone, that has a billing address or whatever, right? I mean, if you, I've tried to get around this a few times, and you know, just to see how good it was. Like, I've bought SIM cards for twenty bucks and put it in a phone and see if I could register with that. Apparently, they know all of this, all of the telephone prefixes for all of these cash for only SIM cards, and uh, they won't allow you to register on Twitter uh, unless it's like an AT and T or you know a well known real name validator, I guess, right? So mm -hmm. the important thing about this is that um, a, a good friend of mine, Timothy, actually, you know him, uh, Timothy Ruff, he, yeah. he likes to say, I don't care who you are. I just care that you're properly licensed and qualified to fly the plane. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't need to know your name or your kids or anything about you. As long as you are, you know, have the pilot's license and you're healthy, then great. That's all I care about when I get on the airplane. So that's, that speaks to this what, not who. It's about what you possess, what, what is true about you, not who you are. And um, this becomes really important when you're talking about transactions and you want to buy something. You don't need to know my name. You just need to know that I'm good for the money. And if it's online and you have to mail me something, I, I should just have to be able to prove that the FedEx or post office knows how to get something to me. Um, you don't need to know who I am. You know, take my yeah. money, mail me my thing, and that's it. Um, and the, the, the reason this is one end of that spectrum is because everything we have today is based around, give me your phone number, give me your email address, give me, show, let, let me look at your ID that has all your personal information yeah. on it. Give me more than I need. Exactly. And, exactly. and that is market value for me. I can, I, can, I can hand it over to marketing and they can sell it or give it away. Right, yeah. right, exactly. Yeah. And, and then the last... Oh, go, go ahead. Go. No, no, no. Uh, I was going to say the last one here is really sort of a meta idea, but it's, it's a balance of power between users and the system. Um, and this could be seen as tangential to what you're doing with customer comments, Doc, about there should be such a thing as user terms. So yeah. if I do choose to, to correlate myself, if I do choose to share my data with you as a system, I want to have a standard set of, of uh, rules that the system itself has to follow when it's storing my data, that kind of thing. So it, it anyway. is a sign of how much the, uh, the web, at least as it's been built out is centralized that it's very hard for anybody to imagine even that, that 
an individual could have their own terms or could travel about the web with their own set of terms that others right. could agree to. And, right. And this it, is also intent casting related as well. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So um, I, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, could go, Catherine. Oh, yeah. Right. yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I just, uh, assuming we're finished with the six, did I count that right? Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's okay. all of it. Wait, I had one last point I oh, wanted okay. to point out one here. Okay, your last point. About, the... about the user sovereignty piece, right? Um, I've heard people come to me and say, well, what about the GDPR and the CCPA? Like, doesn't this, isn't this a legislative solution to the problem you're trying to solve technologically? And I, I, I like to point out that this legislation has been written uh, through a system, our democratic process, where uh, the companies that we that we worry about, Facebook, Twitter, Google, whatever, have some influence on this. And so I, I would argue that the GDPR and CCPA are more like the Magna Carta in the sense that it's a detente between sort of these tech oligarchs. Yeah, yeah and, the, noble, the nobles and the king agree. Yeah. Right, exactly. And then what this analysis of user sovereignty and, and the, the decentralization stuff is more like the American Declaration of Independence, which is a complete reje rejection of the, the aristocratic order. It's like, mm -hmm. we're, we're just not going to accept the world as it is now. Because if we accept the world that it is now, it will always be bent back towards keeping the aristocratic order. The, these tech oligarchs will always be the possessors of the power in this, in this network. And um, in many ways, you know, I, there are a lot of people, and, and myself included, are worried about the systemic uh, consequences of our free and open society. I mean, Zuckerberg went on CNN two weeks ago and with a straight face said, yeah, we're just deleting all the accounts of anybody trying to organize protests against the lockdown. It's like, right. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, huh. so that actually goes right into the question I was going to ask. So... So given your, your six principles, um, we've talked before that, that people are more likely to, let's say, take action or pay attention at all to issues when they feel like there's, they're being harmed, and if you can define that harm. And I thought, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about the harm that the status quo um, does, and, and we can talk about, you know, anything from warrantless searches to uh, the sur surveillance economy to, to, you know, things that I can't even think of right now. Um, and then the, I guess the second part of my question, which could be very long <laughs> and open-ended, is, is then uh, what are the, you know, technical tools that you envision will address these problems? And again, that's a very open-ended and complex answer, I'm sure, but thought those are good directions to go. Well, let me, let me take your first one, which was um, uh, the surveillance and, the, and uh, sort of the problems um, we see. What are the harm? Yeah, what's the harm that's being done? Well, I mean, uh, we saw, what, a week ago that the reauthorization of the uh, Patriot Act, there was supposed to be an amendment or there's an, a proposed amendment. There is an amendment. Had, it's it's the... Uh, oh. Oh, I forget the name of the senator, but uh, got to think two degrees away from him. I can't, uh, oh, uh, Wyden. Wyden oh, somebody. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, amendment, right. Yeah, the Wyden amendment, which was to, to limit searches of people's browsing habits um, to being under a warrant, right? You have to go and get a warrant to be able to get that information. And 
I mean, if you think about it, that should be the case because you have to get a warrant now to see what people check out of the library, which is a very similar right. um, kind of search of a person's um, interests and reading habits. And uh, it, it was narrowly defeated. It, it fell by one vote, I think. It was oh, really? It was it's already vote. happened? Yeah. yeah. I, well, I don't know. I mean, the legislative process is always in churn. You never know what's in it until it's actually been passed yeah. and then... Yeah and uh, actually gets to the president's desk and they sign it. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the practical here is that they would be able to see where you've been um, by going to your ISP and just getting the records without a warrant. It would just be warrantless surveillance of all of our web browsing habits. And my point that I made to Catherine in our, in our discussion before uh, this recording was that you know, we're only worried about this because of the way the web is designed. That if the web had been designed from the beginning to be fully user sovereign and truly decentralized, meaning it was totally encrypted, totally anonymous and private by default, the FBI wouldn't even be bothering because they would know that what the ISP see is nothing. They see just random bits you know, flying by and they don't know where they're going. They only know where they came from. And they can't correlate the responses coming back either. So they could see packets leaving your house, but they wouldn't necessarily know the packets coming back are coming from that service. So they wouldn't even know that, you know, who you were talking to. I mean, it, think of it as like pervasive Tor network all the time. It, it, mm -hmm. It's meant to, to separate you from the counterparty of your conversation. And they wouldn't even care. We wouldn't even care. Nobody would care. It's like, because the ISP then is just a dumb uh, shipper of bits right? They're, they're just a boat yeah. with containers on it, right? Nobody cares. And nor you should we be able care. to, Yeah. And, and you wouldn't be able to yeah. glean any information other than the fact that I'm on the internet and I am sending right. data. Right? And I, I, think that, I think maybe part of the problem is that because the internet was designed this way and suddenly this data and, and surveillance was accessible to whoever whoever wants to access it. It could be, you know, marketing people or, you know, law enforcement or whatever. Well, suddenly, right. you know, they're chomping at the bit to get to it. But really, right. you know, you made an analogy earlier about checking out a library book. You know, your, your library history versus your search history. And, you know, I would argue that, you know, your internet activity is far more intimate and personal than yeah. any of that. I mean, it's, you're right. talking about, you know, you're talking about all the things we, we play Dr. Google with, you know, we're talking about our health, our private health anxiety. We're, you're talking about, you know, yeah. our, our most in, intimate thoughts about anything, you know, and, and, and I think that just because we have access to that doesn't certainly doesn't mean we should. I just, I don't know. I think we're getting right. in a really disturbing sort of thought police situation that I, you know, of course, people like us, we, we're very aware of it, but I think, you know, many are not, especially, uh, you know, when you when we're talking about things like pandemics, suddenly everyone is desperate for this data just because they think it's there. And, mm -hmm. and you know, it, and I don't know how you talk the masses out of it, other than, yes. well, yeah. I mean, I'll, you know, I'll let this, you take it. this is interesting because I'm never going to be able to talk my mother out of Facebook and nor should I. She really enjoys Facebook. It gives her a lot of connection to the outside world. Um, what I'm getting at, though, is that as technologists, we have a responsibility that we should not build systems that open up 
the users of that system to potential civil rights violations, potential, you know, societal impact. Like, I mean, it's no, there's no doubt that the social media systems are being used to manipulate people's emotions, manipulate their politics, you know, to what end is not always obvious. We don't know. Some of it's good. Some of it's bad. I mean, it's definitely good to be able to tell everybody, Hey, you should probably put a mask on and stay home for a little while. I mean, that's always been a necessary function of society, but how the problem is, is that we can't tell when it's a public service announcement or when it's a paid for political manipulation. When it comes across the social media network, you cannot tell, right? Before it was always that crazy Blair on the TV and like, this is just a test, right? That, that, that was, you know, if there was ever a real emergency, this is how it would sound, right? We always knew when it was just the government or, you know, uh, some kind of alert that we all probably needed to know about versus normal advertisement. And when you blur those lines through social media, um, you, you really give too much power to the people who have control over that, I think. And, and so to get back to my original point, we have a responsibility not to build systems like that. That's why these principles of user sovereignty are important as a technologist, if we're building something new, uh, if we follow these principles, it's my thought that we'll get to something um, that protects its users from that potential, uh, the consequences. And you can't always anticipate what those consequences will be. I mean, look at like with this FBI searching of our browser history, right? Do you think Tim Berners-Lee thought back in 19 or 1988, 1990, whenever back then that, oh, I'm building a system that is going to be a primary investigative tool of, of federal law enforcement. I guarantee you he didn't think about that. And um, so, yeah, it's really important. And um, to the point about my mom talking around on Facebook, I, I'm not going to try to do that. And, I'm, and I know that privacy doesn't really sell anything in the market. So the, the idea is to, how do, we, how do we build these systems that are user sovereign, um, that are actually better? They have a better user experience. They're actually better and, and more streamlined and, and uh, provide a better service. I mean, we have to beat them in the market on services and on features, not, not on principles. Um, and uh, one of the interesting things about these problems of distributed systems is if you solve them using user sovereign design, I actually think that it will actually work like magic. It will be a better service. Um, you have things like automatic discovery and automatic introduction. So getting connected to my friends doesn't require going to a server right? And looking them up, I can just, you know, uh, th through other methods, being able to connect with my friends, either through my phone or, you know, a text message or we're next to each other. And so we fist bump or whatever, right? So, um, yeah, it, it really, I think, is on us as technologists. And I think that's why my beef is really with the D-Web people and not with anybody else. Like, I don't, I no longer really care about Twitter, Facebook, and Google, I just want to beat them in the market with better features and, and better technology that's designed with the right philosophies in mind. And because um, the D-Web people are chasing a fantasy that, that was never true. Um, I think we should go deeper in the stack when we talk about reinventing things. Yeah, I was personally pretty, uh, actually, I haven't thought of them as the D-Web people, but I'm, I'm gonna, I just when I look at what... Um, uh, Tim Berners-Lee did with Interrupt and uh, 
and solid. Uh, it struck me as, well, it's kind of a better way of doing the stuff we already don't like, you know, right. rather than I really wanted Tim to kind of play God and sit back there and say, no, no, here are the rules. Like come down with your six things or nine or whatever and say, these are the principles that were embedded in the Reb in the first place. And all you guys are off base, you know, but that didn't happen. And I, he, you know, he decided he was going to get in the business kind of somehow. And, um, and I don't know where that stands, but it, it didn't excite me and it still doesn't. Um, I, I like, I personally like him. I've met him a few times. Um, yeah. I think the world has put a bit large burden on his shoulders and he's just a guy like the rest of us. Um, yeah. I do like what they're trying to attempt. Um, what I was telling Timothy Ruff the other day when I was talking to him was uh, Tim Berners-Lee is, is just eating one slice of the same pizza we're all eating, right? He's just not looking at the whole pie. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, with solid, if you look at it, it's really about an open and standard protocol, right? For storing your data and exposing it to the world. Uh, it's strong. It uses strong encryption. So it's to maintain your control over your data. And it's really about, um, a balance of power between users and systems. It's just not the whole thing. It's not private by default necessarily. It's not pseudonymous by default necessarily because it's still tied to places. It's still tied to domains and, and things like that. It's not fully portable data in the sense that it could live anywhere. Mm -hmm. You still have to have a URL that will point to your pod or whatever, right? As I understand it, I could be wrong. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I got a pod. And I put a couple things in it, but I didn't, it sort of stopped there. I didn't know what was useful about right. it, you know? Um, right. yeah. And I, I think it's one of those things where you kind of need the critical mass. You need, you need the thing in the world that people take one look at and say, I got to have that. Right. And it's not, mm -hmm. it doesn't have that. Uh, well, but, the, the, the well, one way to get these pods to take off, I'm sorry, what were you going to say? No, what no. I was going to ask is, so we, we talk about uh, the D web people, you know, chasing a fantasy and, it's just, I'm trying to rack my brain. If they are chasing a fantasy, then how do we collectively solve this problem without, you know, pushing too much, you know, rules and regulations on companies and people today? How do you solve this problem today or, you know, over this next decade so that we aren't chasing a fantasy? Well, this is, this is actually a pretty interesting line of thinking. That's a great question. Um, again, what you were talking about is things like GDPR and CCPA, and, and I was saying that that's like a Magna Carta. Uh, this is where I'm going to get pretty purist and, and, and pretty fringe radical. So bear with me. I'm trying to use an analogy here. It's not necessarily my personal uh, my personal beliefs, but there are other civil rights where there's a, a struggle between technological power and legislative power. And I'm specifically talking in America about second amendment rights. Um, the, we, we've had, you know, in the constitution, the ability to, to keep and bear arms. And over the years, there have been a number of legislative attempts to try to moderate that, right? You can still own a machine gun today, but you have to jump through a ton of hoops and whatever. Right. Um, but what really terrifies, truly terrifies legislators is the ability for people to automate the manufacture of weapons in their home, okay? So 3D printed guns or like desktop milling machines that can just crank out a gun, just boom, 
push the button, put a piece of aluminum in it, and bang, you get a you get an AR-15, right? It's not that simple. I don't mean to oversimplify it, but it's definitely possible, okay? And that terrifies the people who have always thought that legislative answers would would maintain the normal order. And then suddenly we have this advancement in technology that now disrupts the balance of power in the system, okay? And it's got a lot of people worried. Um, what we have right now on the web is uh, the technological advantage, the technological power rests entirely with the, the tech oligarchs, right? We don't have the technological tools to, to balance that power out. I mean, we have Tor, but it, it's not widely used um, and doesn't present a better web necessarily. It's actually a slower web um, and a limited web because they turn off JavaScript and, and all these things. Um, and so as an answer to trying to balance that out, we, the people, have pushed our legislators to pass these privacy protection laws to try to, to force a balance in, in, the, in the power between the, the, the system and the users, and the, the oligarchs and the proletariat. Um, but what, I, what I'm arguing is that what we need is a sudden shift in the technological power not the legislative power. So that goes to what you were saying. How do, we, how do we have a better future without having to make all these crazy rules about how you can talk and do business with, with um, you know, on the web and, or on the internet? And uh, that's where my, that my research and my analysis around these nine problems of distributed systems and how to solve them using user sovereign design um, comes into play because the whole point of it is to fundamentally shift the availability of a radically powerful technological platform for free speech and free association, right? It, it would be like the equivalent of a 3D printer, a 3D printed gun, you know, gun manufacturing thing, but for free speech, right? We would no longer require something like Facebook, Twitter, or Google, or YouTube, right? To be gatekeepers or moderators of what our discourse is. Um, this philosophy of mine really came about when I worked at the Linden Lab on Second Life, and it was a really eye-opening experience about how their philosophy there um, and dealing with uh, all of the possibilities of humanity in one space. And yeah, they, they, uh, their philosophy at Linden Lab was to provide good filtering, um, a system for people to filter their experience, but to not have anything on by default. So it was the full unfiltered reality. And then if you didn't want to see certain words or certain avatars or go to certain places, you could turn on restrictions for yourself. It was an inversion of, of censorship. So um, did I just, did I just? No, no. No, I no, no. I, I, the the, the I wood chipper went on outside my window again. So oh, okay. yeah, I don't know if that's, if that's audible or not. I'm but not that, audible audio. I, I, actually, it seems to me, I mean, that, that, I think the more palatable <clears throat> comparison might be um, uh, to, to the First Amendment in a way, because um, I think everybody assumes they have free speech, but actually the instruments for it kind of got co-opted. I mean, I saw this happen yeah. with blogging, but, but yeah. I mean, blogging and RSS especially, uh, you know, I mean, it, RSS is a really simple hack that, that Dave Weiner came up with. and. It made, it made it possible for everybody to syndicate what they were doing and made it real easy for everybody to publish for the world. And, and we're seeing something like this, have, uh, something perverting that right now happening with podcasting. Like 
this will this podcast will go out with RSS. Um, yeah. So most of the ones in the world, but Joe Rogan just did a hundred um, million dollar a pound um, deal with Spotify, and Spotify says, yeah, he's going to go behind a paywall um, next fall, or early next year. It, so yeah. it won't be a podcast in the open world. It'll be a podcast inside their silo, right? And uh, and I suppose we'll still all be free and all that, but there. But I saw something like that happen, like with with blogging software. The, you know, WordPress WordPress is a knockoff of movable type to some degree, and it's too complicated, you know. Um, and we never really had this simple, easy way for any one of us to blog. Uh, and I don't know whether we absolutely have to have these big systems in order to do a lot of what we need to do. Um, I mean, I, I I I'll I'll give. Amazon AWS, it's due. You know, we're using Zoom right now, and I know Zoom has, you know, AWS is a back end. That, that gives it the yeah. scale that they need, and, and it works, but it's more or less, it's kind of like the water system. Yeah, we know it's there, but it's kind of, it doesn't care what's on it. It probably does, but not in a way that concerns me too much. But I, I think we're missing, <clears throat> we're missing the key piece that gives anybody the sense that they have real autonomy and sovereignty and power, but doesn't get you into the arguments that are, no, wait a minute, we're all actually all social beings too. And in order to be social, we need the big systems. When, yeah, of course we're all social beings too, but we're both, we're both personal and we're social, but we, we managed to create systems over and over again that subordinate the personal, not just to the social, but to the gigantic, you know, we're kind of, we reinvent the feudal system over and over again, saying, I don't know why we get along without castles. You know, exactly. as long as we have castles, we got to have the rule of law in the castles. And then, you know, and as for the yeah, well, GDP, you know, GDPR and the CCPA, it, it's important to note that the GDPR calls us a data subject. That's it. That's what we are. We're a data <laughs> subject. And a natural person is a data subject, not a data controller or a data processor, which are the actually empowered beings. And the CCPA calls us a consumer. All we do is consume. And it gives right. us the right to get back what's already been taken, which isn't really, really enough. Right. Well, like I said, it's a detente. You know, it's it's an yeah. agreement to preserve the existing system. And what we really need to do is reject it. And considering that any possible legislative effort would be also be influenced by the tech oligarchs, like we can't rely on a legislative solution to really balance the power out on the internet. And what we really need to be doing is this technological shift in power. We need to just reject submitting ourselves to something that can surveil us. So, so, so let me ask you about user sovereignty uh, principles come from. So, so, I mean, you work for Hyperledger. I think there's probably a good chance that a lot of people in our audience don't know what Hyperledger is, or that in fact, it's one of the umbrellas within the Linux foundation, which is, yeah. which quietly became like from a little thing to something really gigantic. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I do, before I go on, I do want to point out that everything I've said here is my own personal yeah, opinion, sure, not I just understand. like reflective of Linux Foundation or Hyperledger. But that said, I absolutely love working in Hyperledger and Linux Foundation. Um, I first installed Linux uh, when someone uploaded Slackware 1.0, all 13 floppies of it on my 20 megabyte hard drive on my BBS back in the mid nineties. And I was really angry that someone took up that much space in my BBS and uh, decided to check it out, saw a message saying, hey, you should install this. 
So I've been using Linux since, yeah, I think 0.99 um, mm. back in the day. Mm. And that would have been 94. Needless, yeah. 94. Yeah. Ish. Yeah. yeah. And so um, needless to say, it's been a lifelong dream of mine to work for the Linux foundation and, and uh, still haven't met Linus yet, believe it or not. He, he does his thing up in Oregon. I don't, we don't get together very often. I never bumped into him at a company thing, but um, uh, yeah, Hyperledger was started a couple years ago four years ago now to be the home of enterprise blockchain. And that stuff is, it's not Bitcoin, but it uses the same kinds of principles and technology. It's, um, it's really about uh, creating consensus among, amongst lots of parties and maintaining a consistent view of the world as, as they're concerned of um, across all the, all the participants. So if you have um, say a bunch of, participants in a market where they're all bidding on on futures or whatever they're all bidding on something uh the process the transaction system is done in such a way that they all check each other's work and they all come to consensus together so the application in bitcoin is we all agree that uh the possessor of this one public key sent bitcoins to the possessor of this other public key that's all that bitcoin really does is build consensus around that but enterprise blockchain can be used for basically everything else. Um, it's been really useful for things like supply chain. In fact, uh, Walmart launched something uh, last year. I'm not sure if it's fully in production yet, but the, you know, to, to deal with food supply safety, you know, when they had that problem with um, leafy greens being contaminated, they, they really wanted to solve this problem and they used um, a hyperledger software to track farm to store and, and to be able to, basically watch where every piece of food went in its process of getting to the shelves. And if there was ever a problem, they would have a record of it. Now, what's interesting about these blockchains is that they use cryptography in such a way to make uh, infallible records of what happened. And why that is most important is that when you start talking about user sovereign design in this new decentralized world that I'm pushing, uh, you have to anchor trust in data you have to anchor trust somewhere how do i know that you actually are the possessor of a driver's license in nevada well there has to be some cryptographic proof that's anchored to some data somewhere and that data is you know the the test that i passed to get my driver's license in nevada and, and my personal data or whatever right so you have to be able to anchor trust and um blockchains are really really good at proving that data existed and that data or that, you know, it existed at a specific time and that the data has not been changed since then. Or if it has been changed, well, we know exactly when it was changed and how it was changed. And so when you have that provenance, if you will, over data, you can then anchor trust on that data. We can prove things cryptographically about that data. And so I love working there because this fits into my broader philosophy of how the world should be decentralized and and uh, it was a, it's a very, very important tool in a, in a world that's getting more and more digital is to be able to track that data and, and to know that it hasn't been modified and that we can trust it. And that it's been around since they said it was around, right? So, yeah, I, I, I love working for the Linux Foundation. It's, it's, it is definitely a, a lifelong dream. Um, probably one of my favorite jobs I've ever had, actually. Very great, good, good nice people. That's fantastic.
So is there anything blockchain uh, is not good for? <laughs> uh, it doesn't make coffee. People are well, using actually. it more that you wish they weren't. It may not um, make, but it can track where your bean came from. It's exactly right, right? <laughs> um, I mean, blockchains are, they're actually very narrow in what they do. It's just that that narrow thing applies to so many things. I think that's the why blockchain kind of got uh, overblown over the last few years. <laughs> it's like, no, blockchain doesn't do everything. No, no, no. Blockchain tracks data. The thing is, is that everything has data in it now. So if you need to track that data, that's probably yeah. a really good solution for that. I generally think of it as it's it's it, it it's a for now formerly novel database design. Okay, so it's a, it's that's correct. Data, it's just a, it's a it's an interesting distributed database design, and yes. uh, and there are a number of them. It's not like there's just one. And uh, there are, there are private ones. There are public ones. There, yeah. <clears throat> uh, there are probably way too many to name at this point. One of the things that I like um, about what's going on with uh, inside Hyperledger. Um, but out in the world is is the notion of self-sovereign identity and that, which is really very simple. You were going into it before. It's just that I don't need, I, all you need to, if all you need to know is that I'm licensed to drive in California, that's all you need to know. You don't need to know anything more than that. And if right. you, you know, uh, and, and if all you need to know is that I'm all, you know, I'm old enough to, uh, uh, you know, to get into the bar or whatever else it is that generally when people are asking or when any, when any system is asking for, your ID, what they're looking for is one simple thing, right? right. I mean, one sentences attribute. more, you know, when you're, when you're in, in the, at the SSI world uh, calls this a, a verifiable credential or a verifiable claim. You just, somebody issued a credential, it could be verified it. And, and that's, and, and the blockchain, I mean, uh, the, yeah, the, the led, the, the column ledgers mostly, you know, um, are just storing like a hash of a piece of data. Is that right? Something yeah, like yeah, yeah. So they're based around a data structure called a hash-linked data structure, hmm. where uh, think of it as like rows in a database, but um, the database only grows in one direction. So like rows are only ever added; they're never removed. And when you add a new row, not only does it have the new data in the new row, but it has a hash, a digest of the previous row. So they're, they're linked to all the previous data. And the reason that's important is you can't pluck a row out of the middle somewhere without that tampering being evident, right? So think of it as like, uh, you know, some, some tamper-proof tape on a, on a consumer product. If you try to open it up to take something out, everybody can tell you broke the warranty sticker or whatever, right? So um, we do, it's just us doing that in, in software, in, in data. And um, the interesting thing about this is that any time you generate data, and, and I'm, I'm gonna shoot from the hip here. I, I was in a conversation like three hours ago um, where I think we invented something. Um, <laughs> I, I think so, actually, I think so. This is very interesting. So anytime you and I create data, so like even when we're creating this podcast, for instance, um, we can be recording this and then storing it in a hashlink data structure where we all have a copy of it. Okay, so maybe it's only one entry, this, this recording. Um, but if this was over text, it could be each one of our conversation, you know, the, the, the text that we send in the conversation could be a record in this hash data structure. Now, since we all have a copy of it, um, any one of us can anchor, quote unquote, anchor it in an existing public blockchain. So I could go and move some Bitcoins in the Bitcoin blockchain and 
store in that transaction the URL where you can download this and the hash of this, right? So we can prove that it existed today and anything else we want to prove about it, like, you know, that Doc Searles was in it, that Dave Hughesview was in it, you know, that every, the four of us were in this podcast. Okay, we can anchor it. And as long as it's available publicly, um, I can now then issue verifiable claims against it. And the invention was the universal, um, I mean, for I mean this in a philosophical sense, not the brand sense, but a universal oracle, right? Which is something you go to for a source of truth. I'm thinking that there needs to be a universal oracle plus a universal, like a standard format for describing what can be proven from that data. And then anytime you generate data, you just feed it to this, this server and it goes, oh, well, data of this shape allows me to issue credentials of these types. So if it were driver's licenses, then it could be credentials that say these people can drive, right? If it's podcasts, it's these people spoke together for this many minutes or whatever, right? There, there is something here, this idea that any data that's generated on the internet can immediately be anchored and then created as the source of truth for verifiable credentials or verifiable claims doesn't exist, first of all, right now. And I think it should be something that we have because in a fully user sovereign world, the integration point now is these verifiable credentials. It's not APIs. It's not even protocols necessarily. It's, uh, you know, I want to be able to go to the post or go to a store and buy something and mail it. I, the integration point is, here's my KYC credential, here's my proof of payment, and here is a voucher to claim a shipping label to mail it to my house, right? Those are three credentials, delegated credentials. <laughs> um, anyway, I, I, could, I could hold sermon on this forever, but, uh, you know, it's just... When you're talking about self-sovereign identity and, and these verifiable credentials, I really think in a decentralized world moving forward that that is the point of integration. If we're all able to talk right, and to reason and to make transactions happen um, based off of these verifiable credentials, these things that we can prove to be true based on some data, uh, then we get away from you know the client-server master-slave model, right? We we we're now talking about some pervasive fabric in which we can get through transactional processes and reason almost automatically about the things that are true about us. Right. And, and I think, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. And I think you're, you're getting to the heart of what you were saying earlier about we can't distinguish what's real information, you know, and what's manipulation. And if you have a verifiable record of true information, that's true. I mean, News is always going to be subjective and truth uh -huh. is always going to be subjective. I'm talking about objective truth, not subjective truth. Uh, but there are you know, some, this doesn't, some yeah. objective truths in the world. There, there the height of Man Everest is still an objective uh, yeah. fact. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Supposedly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> objective and to the point where we can actually have legal and business processes based around some of these objective mm -hmm. facts, right? I do have enough money to buy it. That's an objective fact that I can prove, for instance, right? Yeah. Um, I guess I won't be able to de deny that I was ever on this podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not if we anchor it and then I start yeah. issuing credentials. But yeah, this, this is a, it was a really interesting conversation I had earlier. And it, it was one of those, uh, you know, pardon my language, but it was one of those, oh, shit moments. <laughs> We're like, that doesn't exist right now. <laughs> that would be really useful. Um, yeah, 
it was a fun conversation. Now, uh, I have my, my notepad and pen. What was that idea? No. Oh, no, I'll give, you a, I'll give you a better one. Uh, I'll give you a better one. You want to make a billion dollars? The secure scuttlebutt design, they like to claim is decentralized, but um, they left some holes in the design. They don't, there is no decentralized solution for discovery, which is I'm a new user. I want to find other users to follow so that I can get their updates. They don't have a decentralized solution for that. Uh, they don't have a decentralized solution for now that I'm following somebody and I you know, go offline, turn my phone off, and now I'm back an hour later. How do I reconnect to those users and get their updates? They don't have a decentralized solution for that either. And that's called, um, sorry, that's called coherence is the name I gave to that. Uh, because they don't have solutions for that, almost every secure Scuttlebutt user, when they start getting on it, you know, secure Scuttlebutt is an open source, supposed to be a decentralized Twitter-like oh. thing, right? Microblogging thing. Well, because they didn't design solutions for those two things, uh, every user connects to what are called pubs, and those are super users. They're Scuttlebutt users that if you follow it, then everybody who follows it can see you. So it, it helps connect to other users and it helps build the social network. Um, you want to make a billion dollars, make the scuttlehub.com, make the world's greatest, uh, you know, discovery and coherence mechanism for secure scuttlebutt. Yeah. yeah. Is that it? Is yes, that it? that's it. Okay. Yeah, secure scuttlebutt. It. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of the rage right now in the, in the hacker community and the D-Web community. Um, but it doesn't have fully decentralized solutions for all the problems. So it's open for a scuttle hub, you know, like a GitHub kind of solution ah, for this community. Okay. And especially if you built into it content creator tools, like I can have subscribers. So if you took like, you know, Patreon and put it in there in this, in this hub and you put, you know, uh, maybe a storage and distribution mechanism so you could store your files on it or whatever, right? A search mechanism. None of these things are built into the secure scuttlebutt with a, de a decentralized solution for it. So build that, grow secure scuttlebutt, become the biggest fan and promoter of that system until you start making a dent in Twitter's, uh, you know, new user uptake numbers and then sell it for a billion dollars to Twitter. I mean, there you go. <laughs> there's your recipe for becoming a billionaire yeah, yeah. A tech oligarch. So there's a thought for our audience uh, that, yeah. uh, I think, I th are we, where we stand time-wise, uh, Catherine? We, 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 it's probably about time to, to wrap it up. <laughs> yeah. Although, okay. I think, I mean, I feel like, we went, please come back. I think we have lots of conversations <laughs> to be had. I'd uh, love to. I would love to. You guys are wonderful people. Well, oh, I think, so, so Doc no, and I have had this no, conversation. I'm not wonderful at all. No, Petros is <laughs> yes, awesome. You are. Did you Petros see has been, he, he may not be wonderful, but he is helpful, which may be more important. Yeah, so where do we go to support what you're doing, Dave? Um, well, I don't know. Uh, I don't have a lot of code that I've published about this, but I've been working with a number of big thinkers um, whom I'm not free to name here, but if you are, if it, what I'm saying resonates with your listeners, I'm sure that you can help get them in contact with me. I don't use any social media, not even LinkedIn, um, because I, I limit the amount of data I put on the web. I think the only way you can ever solve the sort of the AI decision-making problem would be to starve them of your data. So I deliberately put false information about me out there, you know, to throw sand in the gears. Um, and uh, then I don't use 
any social media because the internet will absolutely be used as a searchable database of implied intent. And if you happen to have supported an idea that is no longer popular in the future, I mean, we've already seen this when people go back through tweets, you know, from 20 years ago, and then they lose their acting career or their singing career or whatever, because they said something that's no longer acceptable. Right. So, um, Anyway, if they're really interested in, in what we're doing about or what I've been working on in user sovereignty and, and the nine problems of distributed systems, and um, I would love to talk to them. I, I think uh, from my experience of building open source communities, I think we could have a really good one um, that yeah. is largely nice and benevolent and, and you know fun to be a part of. And I think really what the first step to do is to start working on something like a pervasive Mixnet. Um, we have to go deep in the stack. Remember, you can't. We can't work on the web from the top down. We've got to work on the web from the bottom up. And the first step to that would be to build uh, a truly pervasive mixnet that operates under the assumption that all of the nodes are mobile and frequently disconnected and change their IP addresses. It's it's a super hard problem that was first. Uh, first identified, I think, by Andrew Tenenbaum back in his distributed systems book. The, the intro to his book says uh, something to the effect of uh, a fully distributed, ubiquitous storage fabric made up of frequently disconnected and mobile users is left as an exercise to the reader. Um, I read that when I was in college way back in the 90s, oh. and, and I've been working on it ever since. And I think we're getting really close with mobile IPv6 and the ability to um, basically be connected all the time without changing your IP address uh, is going to be really a game changer. And uh, I think if we wrote some very key software that's, that just makes this a ubiquitous fabric where everybody's anonymous and everybody, well, pseudonymous and private and encrypted, and then we build on top of that, that would represent, like what I said earlier, the equivalent of a 3D printer from my First Amendment rights. And it might be a serious technological shift in the power structure of the internet. Um, I don't have any illusions to think that this would be anything useful or great, but who knows? I mean, well, I think Tim Berners-Lee did useful and great. If it, if it ubiquitizes, it has to be useful and great. So Right. I, I hope so. But so many people have tried this before, right? And it hasn't yeah. happened. I mean, I mean, if if it was that easy, then we'd all be using, what is it, GNUnet or Freenet for publishing online, you know? Um, but then again, it does happen. Tim Berners-Lee didn't think the web would be as big as it is. I mean, he's said that many times. Yeah. So who knows? Yeah. Um, you should never begin a project like this worried about the outcome. You know, all mm. the problems are baked into in the beginning. I mean, the web itself was had problems from the very beginning. And really all I care about is that it has the right philosophy and then follows the right uh, principles. And that's what these user sovereignty principles are. Now, whether it's useful or not, I, I don't know. I, I would use it. I'm trying to build the internet I'm comfortable using. That's really what it is. I don't, I that. honestly, I don't give a shit about it. Sorry, I shouldn't say <laughs> I'm that. I'm gonna build the planet fun. that I need, okay? <laughs> you right. guys can I come mean, along if you want. I, I think I, you... <laughs> in many yeah. ways, I don't give a shit about other internet users. But it's about me, but in a way, if I make it, I'm so sensitive to my privacy and, and, and uh, you know, my, my sovereignty on the line that if I worry about building something that I'm comfortable with that I use, I'm pretty sure it would also be useful for other people. So at the same time, I do care very, very much about everybody else on the internet. Well, I think um, you know, the first step is people that 
care that care a lot more about these things you know get it going and then i think as more you know more and more people will start to care because yeah. well it's inevitable i think yeah. there are some very serious problems resulting yeah. from the internet as it is and and if no you know somebody's got to start somewhere right and, and right i just really want to get connected to my buddies and have a very secure and private place for us to have open and honest conversation that's really what i'm trying to get I, i'm sort of seeing you as the <clears throat> as the choking canary looking for a better coal mine you know it's like, <laughs> and you're going to drill your own coal mine and by the way it's not going to be coal you know it's going to be whatever you whatever ore you like right I, i'm partial to to actually uh, digital gold, but that doesn't come out of the ground. That's that's mined yeah. uh, by yeah. hashing machines. Yeah, well, that's great. Okay, well, great. thanks a lot, Dave. This is yeah, this has been fantastic, anytime. and uh, I'll see you in the interwebs with a yeah. well, with the post interweb. That's when you if you can find him. <laughs> if yeah, we I, was find, say where. <laughs> I think we can. Well, anyway, thank you so much. Um, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to do it again. Thanks, yeah, Pedro. Thanks for having me. Stop. Okay, bye bye. Yeah.